says, for as many have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law. You make your boast in God and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, even with your written code and circumcision, who are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he was a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And Father, we humbly ask just for the aid and the assistance of your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, that you would give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church, that you would prepare us accordingly. You know what that means for myself and each one in this room. So prepare us, Lord. Bless your word and speak to us by your spirit's ministry. We ask expectantly in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Would you agree that everybody certainly wants security in their lives? We want, for example, job security, and we don't always have that guarantee, but we want and we look for job security. We want financial security. We want a sense of being economically secure. Uh, We want home security. That's why maybe you bought the big obnoxious dog that you now have or uh, invested in the security system that you got wired into your place at home to guard your stuff. We want marital security. We want to know if we're married, that there's a sense of security, that that person is going to stay committed to us. They're going to be faithful, that they'll be with us throughout our life. We want national security from our government and our military. I think many people also do genuinely desire a sense of spiritual 
security. That is, we want to have a sense of assurance that our sins are indeed forgiven by God. The things that we all have a sense of guilt of, that we know we've done wrong, the skeleton in our closet, the mistakes we've made, the regrets we have. We want to know that there's a sense of forgiveness. We, we want to know that when we die, that we are sure and certain what's going to happen afterwards. We want a sense of security in regards to things like what happens in the afterlife. But in all those areas, there is as well a danger of what we could clearly call false security. You know, I looked up the definition of false security even this week. False security is defined in this way. When something makes you believe that you are safe, when in reality you are not. When something makes you believe that you're safe, when in reality you are not. Well, our passage this morning really, and I know it's a lengthy set of verses we're looking at, really in our passage here, the Bible is warning against false security in spiritual and eternal matters. That's the central point here. The danger, it's a warning of false security in spiritual and eternal matters. Remember, chapter 2, we said, and we saw last week as we began it, is seeking to convince the self-righteous person who is feeling very morally superior because they're not like the, you know, the, the, the prostitute on the street or the mass murderer in our prison system or the drug addict who sells drugs to kids. You know, they're not this unrighteous person from their perspective. So there's a sense of maybe because they live a little more morally, they maintain some convictions, you know, they don't cheat on their taxes, they try and live a, a somewhat of a moral life and they are against those who do things that we deem ungodly and horrible in culture. And, and so because of that, there's a sense of self-righteousness righteousness, a feeling of moral superiority, but the Bible here is trying to convince even the morally superior person, look, but yet you are still guilty as a sinner before God. You're still a sinner in the same way as any other person around. And it began sharing with us as we looked at the first 11 verses last week, sharing how the judgment of God is completely righteous among humanity. In fact, we looked at sort of, if you could say, almost maybe like five different aspects or principles of God's judgment in our study last week. Regarding God's judgment, we saw that God's judgment is in accordance with the truth. That is, unlike human judgment, God has all the facts. He's God. So his judgment is in accordance with the complete truth. There's no covering up what happened. There's no missing information. God's judgment is in complete accordance with the truth. We also saw that God's judgment is unescapable. It's unavoidable. Every soul, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. It's unescapable. Everyone will experience the judgment of God regarding their life. Thirdly, we saw that God's judgment is purposely delayed in order to give people time to repent, that God's patient, his long-suffering, and he hopes that his love and goodness would give humanity a chance to realize that, and in brokenheartedness, they would turn to him in repentance before it's too late. Fourthly, we saw that God's judgment is according to one's deeds, Again, salvation isn't by works or deeds, but God's judgment is according to deeds because our deeds are a sincere reflection. Our behavior is a clear picture of what we actually believe inside our heart. We behave according to what we actually believe. 
And from God's standpoint, the two are inseparable. And finally, we saw in verse 11 where he said there's no partiality with God, that God's judgment does not offer anyone any partiality or favoritism. There's no special exceptions. There's no special perks or privileges. You can't buy your way out of something or bargain with God by kind of brown-nosing with him a little bit or you know, quick talking. There's no partiality. God's judgment is just and fair. And it's with that thought in mind, Paul continues now, verse 12, if you look at the text with me, saying, For as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law, he says, are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do things in the law, these, although not having in the law, are a law to themselves. For they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful there, a lot of words. What exactly is, is Paul trying to communicate there? Well, in this section, Paul is basically indicating that no one, Absolutely no one, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, righteous, self-righteous, unrighteous, whatever man deems himself to be in his own estimation, that no one is excused from personal accountability of their life before God. Because God has a just basis in the way that he executes his evaluation and judgment of humanity. The judgment of God against our lives, please hear me in this, will be carried out in this way. And that's this, what we did with what we know. That's the point Paul's making in these verses. What we did with what we know, the revelation and the understanding and light that we have. He says in verse 12, pointing this out, as many as have sinned without the law, that would be the Gentile people, they'll perish without the law. As many have sinned in the law, that would be the Jewish people, they will be judged by the law. The point will be held accountable for how we responded to the revelation that we ourselves had to the measure of light that we ourselves possessed in that understanding. This verse is picturing the difference between, notice, the Jew and the Gentile. Again, if you're not familiar with that by way of learning, the Jew speaks of the people of Israel. The Gentile is a term that speaks to anyone simply who is non-Jewish, anyone outside of the Jewish race. And here Paul puts a distinction between those two. The Jews, remember, were God's chosen people. They were the people who Jehovah God revealed himself to. He, by his grace, sovereignly chose them. And they received the, the law of God, the Pentateuch, the you know, Genesis to Deuteronomy, what we often refer to as the law with all of its commands and the sacrificial system, the priesthood. So the Jew had a special blessing in that they possessed a written revelation of God's word. They received the law. They had a clear standard, a clearly documented uh, ability to have spiritual truth spelled out for them in written form. God gave them a clear 
revelation in written form of his law and of his standards. Now, the Gentiles, all non-Jewish people, they didn't have that same privilege. It wasn't supplied to them, initially at least. However, what God is saying here is though they weren't afforded the written revelation of a reference point for spiritual truth in written form in the law, God is going to say here, nonetheless, they still had internal testimony in both their conscience as well as in creation, which we saw back in chapter 1. So because of that, the point that Paul is trying to make here is both are still equally accountable to God. There will be no partiality shown to the Jew in judgment, and there won't be any partiality or exception shown to the Gentile. Both are responsible. First of all, to the Jew, Paul says, as many Jews who've sinned within the confines of the law, they're going to be judged by the law. The Jew who had the law of God, the written word of God, he says they're going to be accountable for what God supplied to them. God gave them light. He gave them revelation. The boundaries and standards were clearly spelled out. And just because they possessed that as a special privilege as God's chosen people, what the Bible is telling us here is just because they took time to learn those things, it doesn't mean they were excused from living them out. See, we need to remember respectful learning means absolutely nothing if there's no responsive living. Respectful learning means nothing. Anybody can listen to a lecture. Anybody can read information. But respectful learning contributes to nothing if there's no responsive living, especially in spiritual matters. Once spiritual understanding is received from God's perspective, there's personal accountability now. That's what Paul's saying in verse 13. Look at the text. He says, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers, those who respond obediently, those who live submissively to what light and understanding they received. He says it's the doers of law that will be justified. And when he uses that term there, to be justified or be just in the sight of God, it means to be accepted or to have God's approval. That's the point he's making. He's referring to a person who is in right standing with God. He's saying who's in right standing with God? Who has God's approval and God's acceptance? He says from God's perspective, the person in right relationship with him are not the Jews who've just simply heard the law and the word of God, but those who have actually embraced and are obeying what it says. They're responding to that light that God has given to them. He says these are those who are justified, who are right in the sight of the Lord because they've obediently responded to the truths and claims that God gave to them. Having a spiritual upbringing, and this is, I think, the point Paul's getting to, having a spiritual upbringing, a religious structure, as the Jews, in a sense, had, a religious education is of no value to God if you do nothing with it. Just because you were exposed to Christ doesn't mean you've encountered Jesus Christ. Just because they were exposed to the law doesn't mean they were obeying and observing the law. And from God's perspective, even though you have a religious structure or a lifestyle or an upbringing exposed to those things, if you do nothing with it or you ignore it, it therefore has no value in your life. The point is very simply this. God gives no special brownie points to a person who was raised in a religious lifestyle. Okay, it's not, like, uh, it's not like the things of the kingdom of God. It's kind of like the Boy Scouts. So you can somehow get your religious ranger badge if you 
went through particular requirements and you fulfilled the classes and so therefore okay god says okay you went to the classes and you respectfully said so so there you go you get a little religious ranger badge and we're going to promote you to the next level so you get a special perk because you listened to the lectures and paid attention and so forth and you fulfilled your religious instruction the question god is saying is no 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 what are you doing with a light that you've received what effect is it having on your life? Have you responded to it? Have you embraced it? Those who have spiritual revelation, the Bible says, are actually more accountable to God because they know more. They've been exposed more. Jesus said it this way, Luke 12, 48. He says, for to everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. One occasion they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, your mother and your brother are outside. Your, your family members, they want to see you. Jesus said, who are really my family members? He wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but he wanted to convey a spiritual principle. Who are really those who are rightly related to me? Jesus was saying. And he answered this. My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and obey it. Again, responding to what the truth is being submissive and obedient and compliant to what God's truth is. And this was the point Paul was making to the danger of the false security of the Jew who had a very religious upbringing that they wouldn't rest in that wrongly. Now, secondly, he also shows that because God shows no partiality and judges fairly and everyone's accountable, he also says there to us in verse 12, also, he says, as many have sinned, verse 12 Without the law, the Gentiles, they will also perish or be judged without the law. So Gentiles who sinned against God without ever hearing the law, they didn't have the standard the Jew did. They didn't have a reference point, if you would, where they had a written revelation of the Old Testament law and scriptures. But yet God is saying here, but yet they're still not innocent of their guilt either. They can't play the card. Well, I didn't know any better. God says, Oh, yes, you did. This is the point God's going to make here, that the Gentile can and should and will also be judged even without the written revelation of the word of God. Though they did not have God's standard in written form, the truth of what is right and wrong, God is saying, it was written in the depth of your heart because your conscience was testifying to you throughout your entire life of what was right and what was wrong you know, little Jiminy Cricket was alive and well on the shoulder of every person. God's perspective, he calls that conscience. And God's going to judge them according to the violation of the internal law of what they were dismissing in their heart. That's the point of verse 14 and 15 when he says there, for when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature still do the things that are written in the law, they know what's moral at times, these, although not having a law, become a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, either notice accusing or excusing them on the inside. So here God is conveying without written law, humanity naturally innately knows within themselves what is right and what is wrong. There's an innate sense in every human being because God has given us a conscience when he created us, an internal moral judge, a work of the law written in our heart that bears witness to us, that becomes a law to ourselves. 
where we have a sense of where we, we kind of understand where a moral boundary should be drawn. And it's very evident and alive in every person. And because of that, because there is that internal moral testimony, that boundary that we set, that we understand from our conscience, accusing, hey, this isn't right, or, or this is okay, or that's really wrong. And, and what begins to happen is at times we, however, violate that. And what the Bible is saying here is people always know, even without a written revelation, a standard copy of the law itself, he's saying people still know when they violate their conscience. They know when they violate their conscience. They're fully aware human conscience is a God-given thing. It's internal. It's active in every soul. And it examines what we're doing, our choices, our behaviors, and it speaks to us in our thoughts within, accusing us when we commit error. It gives us a, a bearing. The question simply then becomes this, is whether we listen to the voice of our God-given conscience or not. That's a great application to think through this morning. Have you recently been transgressing what God has been saying to you in your conscience regarding something? Maybe you can't put your finger on a scripture. Maybe you say, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not religious or spiritual. I don't know what the Bible says. But you know what your conscience is saying to you. You know exactly what your conscience is saying to you. And you know very well when you're disobeying your conscience. When you're violating your conscience and the testimony of God speaking to you in your conscience. And when you do that, God says you are guilty. You're guilty. Just as guilty as the person who had the written standard and transgressed it as well. The point here in summary is this. Those who were raised with a moral religious structure like the Jew, those who were raised completely apart from such are equally accountable. The mistake of the Jew with the religious structure was a false security of saying, I was raised in the things of God, man. I was raised in the things of God. I, I paid my dues. So that should give me a little extra perk, certainly, when I stand before God. And the Bible saying that's false security. The mistake of the irreligious person who never was given a moral religious upbringing or training is the false security of saying, hey, I was never taught right or wrong. Nobody ever told me what the Bible said or what was right or righteous. So you know what? I didn't know any better. And God's saying, oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did, because you had testimony of your conscience within. And, and there's no saying I'm excused because no one taught me. God says both of those are wrong and false security. And he says, verse 16, there is coming a day, look at it, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according, Paul says, to my gospel. There's coming a day when God is going to judge all the secrets in the hearts of every man of what he has done wrong throughout his entire life and all will be found guilty. Now we try and justify. I'm just like you. Humanity, we try and justify our innocence even when we do what's wrong, that we're not personally responsible. Either we, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person, man. I mean, yeah, I'm not you know, doing that, yeah, but I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or we justify with the reasoning of, well, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing was wrong. I mean, I'm innocent. I didn't really know that that was wrong. I didn't know the Bible's against that. Or, and, and here's what's going to happen, verse 16 saying, is when we stand before God, if we try and utilize that approach, God's going to say, oh yeah, roll video. And God's going to say, how about this situation? Well, Lord, I mean, yeah, I was doing that, but, but I didn't realize on the inside that that was wrong. And God's going to say, wait a minute, can you zoom in there? 
Can you zoom right into the secret place of their heart? And God says, see that? You knew it was wrong. You knew it was wrong. You were still doing it. And God is going to reveal the very things of the depths of our heart. We're going to say, well, what about this occasion? What about that occasion? Well, how about when you did this? You knew about that? Oh, I knew about that. How about when you thought this? You knew I thought? Yeah. God says, I know everything. And that, therefore, makes every person equally guilty before God. God is aware and will hold us accountable for everything. The secretive things we've done wrong are secret sins. That's why keeping sin secretive is a vain and a foolish effort. It's a vain and foolish effort. Proverbs 28 says this, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses them and forsakes them will find mercy. God said you'll never prosper covering sin. It's better to just blow the horn on yourself, confess it, and then take the pathway of forsaking it. That is the way to begin to experience mercy. And notice as well, verse 16, we also see here, he says, God will judge men by Jesus Christ. Interesting. Jesus, understand the Bible teaches, Jesus is both Savior and Judge. That's why it's so totally righteous. Because the very one who's the Savior is also the Judge. Jesus is divinely authorized to execute judgment. He said it, Acts 17 says, God's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. And here's what's the most marvelous thing. Don't miss that word at the end of verse 16, the gospel what is the gospel? The gospel is the very wonderful news that Jesus Christ, who could justly judge and condemn us for our sin and guilt against God, actually stepped down after he judges our sin and actually substituted his own life as the sacrificial payment for the penalty of our sin. I heard a story of a young man who violated the law and, and was kind of being a little brazen about his attitude afterwards, even with a police officer. He goes, hey, well, my dad's the local judge, man. My dad's the judge. You know, I'm, I'm going to get off. My dad's the judge. And he went into the courtroom. He faced his father. All the facts came out, went through the process, and his father said, guilty. Guilty. $5,000 fine or six months in prison. And he goes, what? $5,000 fine? I don't got $5,000. I can't believe my dad's doing this. What is he doing? And then as he was being handcuffed and, oh, I guess you're going to spend six months in prison, walking out of the courtroom, his father stepped down from his judge's position, took off his robe and went over and took out his checkbook. And he said, as his father, I'd like to pay that fine. And he paid the $5,000 fine and set him free. It's a lot like what God's done for us. The Bible tells us regarding Jesus that he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. And so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Jesus, who is and will be our judge, actually became our Savior. It's our choice how we face him. Much better to face him as Savior. Paul, being a Jew, keep in mind, strictly raised, raised himself in an orthodox religious upbringing, very strictly, knew no doubt the danger of being deceived by false security. So that's why in the remaining part of the chapter, he now gives further warning to the religious person like he himself was. He's speaking from experience. 
He gives warning to the religious person to avoid false security. Look with me, verse 17, as our text goes on. Paul says now to the Jew, who is much like, indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law. You make your boast in God. You know his will. You approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. See, Paul's pointing out here that the religious Jew had a sense of spiritual confidence as if he were automatically right with God just because of maybe like his title, his label, and the fact that he did have a good amount of spiritual knowledge in a religious system in which he was raised in. Paul's saying, look, you call yourself a Jew. Do you think just because you have the title Jew, that means right with God? Just because you are well instructed in the things of God in a religious system, that that automatically means you're right with God. But he knew that there was this sense of false confidence, this sense of spiritual confidence. And can I say this by way of application? Have you ever noticed in spiritual matters that sometimes today still people feel very confident spiritually just because of a title? Have you ever spoken to someone before and you try and dialogue about spiritual things or ask questions and they say, hey, I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. Yeah, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Catholic. Okay. What's that saying? I got a title. I know my title. They're resting in a title. Are you a Christian? Do you know Jesus? But see, this same kind of thing plays itself out to this day still. You know, the, the resting on the fact that they've put in their time in a sense. Perhaps they've attended the classes. Maybe they were raised in church. You know, maybe a young person there is one. You're raised in the church. Maybe you've attended the, the classes, you know, gone through, you know, fulfill this, confirmation classes, went to a Christian school. I, I've got all the, I did all that. I, I checked all the boxes. I went to all the classes. I showed up. I did my thing. I've studied the Bible. And there's a sense of spiritual security in that, but it's a false spiritual security, God is saying. Just resting in those things alone. He goes on, verse 19, he says, and you are confident. I have that circled because that's the idea. They were confident. You are confident that you yourself, the Jew thought he was a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. Again, Paul's being repetitious here, having the form and knowledge of the truth in the law. Take notice again, the religious Jew, because of their experiences, because of their upbringing, they felt very self-assured, look at it there, that they were fine with God. They were a Jew. They were raised around and in the things of God. They didn't need help spiritually. They were there to help other people spiritually who weren't afforded the same blessing of being raised in the religious system or in the experiences of God that they were afforded. And they gladly accepted it was their job, look at the text, to guide everyone else, to help other people understand morality in the sick world around them. And notice as a result of that strong familiarity with their religious matters, it says there, verse 19, or excuse me, verse 20, that they had a outward form of knowledge in the truth and law of God. An outward form. That word indicates that they had a strong appearance as those who knew God. They had a strong representation or a strong reputation as what someone would look at and say, hey, that person is the ideal religious person. That is the ideal spiritual religious devotee. They, that person fits the mold. 
They have the lifestyle, they have the reputation, but yet we see in the gospel records, remember in Jesus' day, that the experiences in daily living of the so-called religious Jews and religious leaders didn't really match, correct, what they should have been actually living out if they were in right relationship with God. And we see this throughout the gospel accounts. That image of knowing God's word never translated into knowing God personally. Jesus said, John 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but you fail to see these are what testify of me, and yet you won't come to me. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus warned of how, he said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Jesus said, in vain you worship me. Wait a minute. In vain you, you can worship God in vain? According to Jesus, you can. You can honor God with your lips and your heart be completely detached and far from him. According to Jesus, you can. Jesus said the problem with those who are doing that is they lay aside the commandments of God and they esteem the traditions of men. See, their system and their traditions, religious traditions at that, became more important than the very word of God themselves. And Jesus said, you've gotten co caught up in the system, you're missing the Savior. And sadly, there are many people that get caught up in a system and they miss the Savior. They get caught up in the principles and philosophies and the protocol of a religious system, which they're very familiar with, but they miss the person of God in the process. And this was the concern that Paul had for his fellow Jews. There was a false security in a system of religion they were familiar with, but it lacked experience with God personally. And this was the great concern. Today, there are many who feel self-assured in a spiritual condition, listen, because they are familiar, very familiar, with a religious system. The Bible speaks of the danger of having a form of godliness but denying God's power within. Spiritual routine, yes, but rejecting the real work of God in one's heart. It's a dangerous, dangerous self-deception that can happen. Paul goes on to say there, verse 21, he's going to further confront this false security. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, are you going around and robbing temples for their idols? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? So what's Paul doing here? He's kind of with rhetorical questions. He's challenging, he's poking and prodding at the heart of those just like himself at one point in his life when he was a very religiously self-confident man but had no real genuine relationship with God. Paul's challenging now with these searching questions the religiously self-assured person of what? Their hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy. He says, wait a minute. He says, you who are going around teaching other people, are you ever learning the truth for yourself? You, he says, who are preaching to others that they shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that, are you doing the very things that you're telling other people that they shouldn't do? Well, I don't commit adultery. Well, Jesus said, remember in relation, he said, thou said thou shalt commit adultery, but he said, I tell you, if you looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Again, it's much deeper than just outward observances. The recognition of a person's own sinfulness, not being blinded in self-righteousness or slipping into hypocrisy in our behaviors. I'll tell you, I look at these set of verses here and it's a strong challenge for those of us in this room 
who have the privilege to teach God's word in some capacity, whether it's a little small group Bible study or a home fellowship or teaching God's word to our children or leading a women's Bible study or having the opportunity to communicate the scripture in some form, in any capacity, God says, look, you're teaching others, but are you living the very things you're teaching? Are you obeying the very things you're telling other people or are doctrinal truth? Are you living them out yourself and responding to them and observing them? I look at this and I think, what a strong challenge or perhaps a rebuke for those of us who are parents raising children. How these verses are very searching for us. Again, look at verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? Parents, are we teaching our kids, hey, this and that and this, but are, are, are we living it ourselves? Are we living the very life of Christianity that we're trying to raise our children in and communicate, having a form of knowledge but not following? He says, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Are you telling your kids, we should do this and we shouldn't do that and, and you should do this, but then are they look at you saying, well, you don't? Or if they knew in private, are you doing the very things that you're telling them or right or wrong to a contradiction of what you're doing? That's a strong searching warning to us as parents. For those of us who are just Christians and we're in this world, I hope, being salt and light and we're preaching to people and telling them the truths of God and are we ever guilty of sharing with unsaved people around us and then perhaps living in complete hypocrisy in front of them the next day or afterward? He says, verse 23, you make your boast in the law, you're quoting Bible verses in the job place. He says, but then do you dishonor God by breaking the law? in front of the very people that you boast of how well you know the scriptures. Verse 24, he says, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the idea is the unsaved, because of you as it is written. So he quotes Isaiah 52 regarding how Israel, when they failed to not only represent God properly and be a light to draw people in, how worse their hypocrisy in the world that they were supposed to be a witness of God to was doing what? causing people to blaspheme God. It was giving people ammunition and the hypocrisy to then mock God and to question God. And it was a very destructive result of spiritual hypocrisy. And see, as a parent, if we live in hypocrisy, listen, don't dismiss how destructive that is. You are confusing your child. God help you. You have no idea how destructive that is to a kid when they see double. And I'm not saying there's perfection, but if you fail, then confess and apologize to your kid for failing and let him recognize for what it is. Do you realize the destructiveness of when we in this world, again, misrepresent Jesus or, or, or we go around, and I, you'll see this on occasion, I've talked to people, I've talked to someone just recently, whoa, yeah, there's this one guy, he's always quoting Bible verses. And then he's the guy in the party. He's got all the beers in his hand. He's drunk quicker than anybody. But he can quote a lot of Bible verses. And the mockery, the stumbling, the confusion that that causes. And here he's saying this is such a destructive thing. He goes on verse 25. Before I get excited, let me go forward. For circumcision is indeed profitable and if you keep the law. But, Paul says again, if you're a breaker of the law... Your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So Paul's experiencing what? That the Jew, the religious Jew, is going to argue and dispute with him. Say, yeah, Paul, I understand. Yeah, yeah, we're sinners. Okay. 
but we're also the covenant people of Abraham. I mean, we have circumcision, and we obey the, the right of circumcision. So most Jews would make a false assumption that because of that physical mark of circumcision that identified them as a part of the covenant, they considered themselves therefore righteous. Many of them believed they would automatically go to heaven just because of their connection to Judaism and the Abrahamic covenant. They just believed that. Remember, circumcision was that ceremonial rite that God gave to the Jews to observe. It was a sign or a symbol that God gave to them to identify themselves outwardly, but it was to speak of the inward reality of their relationship with God in their hearts. The cutting away of the flesh was to be a symbolic picture of an inward reality of their relationship with God, that they were a people who did not live after the flesh, but they were people who lived after the impulses and the direction of the Spirit instead. So that cutting away the flesh in the circumcision was just a picture to symbolize their relationship with God as a Jew, that they were people who didn't live after the flesh and its passions, but they lived according to the Spirit, to a higher calling and to a higher thing. It's sort of like, again, that symbol, like, like a wedding ring I have here on my finger. You know, I've been wearing this ring for almost 20 years now, but this, this ring symbolizes the relationship and the commitment that I have with my wife. It's a symbol. It's an outward reminder to me and an identification to others that I have a love relationship with a woman and I have a commitment to her. But it pictures the inward reality in the relationship experience. Same with circumcision for the Jew, but that ceremonial observance, unfortunately over time, though strictly observed by them, they kept strictly observing it, over time, though they strictly observed it, they neglected the spiritual reality and they began to have a false sense of confidence in the ceremony. They were trusting in the ritual. They were believing that as long as we keep observing this ritual, we're safe, we're secure. And that's what Paul's challenging in verse 25 when he says circumcision is indeed profitable or valuable if you keep the law. He's saying, look, if you keep God's word and you have a relationship with him, then he says, you know what, there can be value to a spiritual ordinance or to an observance. We're called to observe communion as Christians. It can have value if it means the same thing in your life personally and you're living a life in accordance with it. But he's saying, if it's nothing other than a dead ritual, and he says you observe circumcision, but you break the law of God, then he says it's become as if you don't even observe it. It doesn't really have any value anymore. It has no, in a sense, meaning or profit to it. It becomes nothing from God's perspective other than worthless religious activity. It's just dead ritual, God says then. It's just going through the motions of religious observance. And we need to remember God's wanting us to realize that he is not appeased with, nor can he be bribed by just religious activity. That's not sufficient for God. And it is possible, let's be very honest, to go through religious motions and routines and all the while live in complete contradiction in our personal life. Have we not all heard people say before things like, well, I mean, I mean sure I'm... You know, I'm sure I'm still getting drunk, but I'm still doing the church thing. I mean, I'm still giving a little bit of money as well, and I mean, I'm reading my Bible. Or sure, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend and we're not married, but I'm still doing the church thing. In fact, we do the church thing together. We go sleep together afterwards. But I'm still doing the church thing. I'm still reading my Bible. Yeah, I'm doing drugs, but I'm, I'm still doing the church thing. Well, I'm, and, and that's possible. 
People can go through religious motions and live in complete contradiction in their hearts. And the Lord's saying, no, I want devotion. I want a right heart. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 10, 16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. God says, I want your heart. Not just a religious routine. That's a cheap and easy buy-off. And God says it means absolutely nothing if it's not from a right heart condition. He says, verse 26, trying to illustrate this in a flip side, he says, therefore, if the uncircumcised person keeps the religious requirements of the law, Paul says, wouldn't his circumcision then be counted as circumcision? And the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, he's going to actually judge you, he says, with your written code and circumcision who have become a transgressor of the law. So Paul's trying to further validate this idea of false security, trusting in ritual in an unhealthy way, but living in contradiction personally. And he uses this hypothetical idea here to illustrate that he says, let's say if a Gentile person, they don't have the law. They don't have circumcision. They don't know the rites and rituals and you know, do all the things that are part of the system that you've come. He says, but, but let's say they have sincere faith in God and they love God and they have a relationship with God. He says that person would be in a better place to be right with God than would the religious rule keeper who knows all the routines and observances but lives in complete contradiction and hypocrisy dishonoring God in their heart and in their life. Again, the point is simply this. It's not about rituals. It's about genuine reality of relationship. Religious rituals have no value if there's no heart relationship. And to trust in a ritual is false security. It is dangerous false security. God's fully aware, please hear me, he's fully aware when people are playing church publicly and are living in contradiction privately. He is fully aware, and that's a dangerous place of false security. Look how Paul concludes verse 20 and 29. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul's telling his listeners, and you and I here, he's, look, the true Jew, from God's perspective, he says, is not just outwardly ritualistic. He says a true Jew would be someone who has faith inside of his heart and is having a genuine heart relationship and experience with God. Now, please understand, in verses 20 and 29, this is not teaching here that the Gentiles replace Jews and they become true Jews. This is not teaching that the church has replaced Israel. That is erroneous chapters 9 through 11 will clearly tell us that Israel is still Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. That's not the point here. The point is an exhortation that it's no good to have a religious ritual if you're trusting in that ritual to think that's what makes you in right relationship with God or to think somehow that that makes you acceptable. The Bible teaches, no, there must be faith and sincere heart relationship with God. This is the caution here. Sadly, many today, as I said, trust wrongly in a religious ritual or a set of rituals and observances. Maybe it's baptism. Well, I was baptized when I was a baby or, or I got baptized you know, 27 years ago or uh, you know, I went forward at a church service or I take communion. I mean, who has not before? I'm a pastor. I've times people, hey, my relative's about to die. Can you please come give him communion? Well, I can, but well, I'm, you know, I'm going to probably choke him to death and kill him sooner. Me giving them communion is not going to seal their eternal destiny. You know, get that cracker down your throat. Get it down there. 
What is that? It's a false security and observance that that somehow is what makes a person right with God. Again, it can be church membership or sac- none of these things bring salvation. Jesus brings salvation. Faith in God is what makes the sinner righteous and forgiven. God wants a heart relationship. Notice God's criteria is not on external religious activities or following a checklist. It's about focusing on the internal experience. You see verse 29 there? He says the the true Jew is the one who inwardly is experiencing circumcision of the heart in the spirit not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Again, they're not doing religious things to look good for men. They're actually wanting to live to please God, to serve God in pleasure, a commitment to God inwardly, circumcision of the heart, in the spirit. You know, you could honestly read verse 28 and 29 somewhat, putting the word Christian in there. Verse 28, for he was not a Christian who was one outwardly. I'm a Christian. I do the Christian stuff. I go to the Christian place. I got the Christian bumper stickers and t-shirts. I'm a Christian. God says, a Christian is not a Christian outwardly, but one who is one inwardly, in the heart, who's had a hard encounter and experience with the Lord. The person rightly related to God is that individual. You know, this morning, let me leave you with these two thoughts. Perhaps, perhaps you're here this morning as a Christian, and maybe you are doing really well being able to go through the motions outwardly of a Christian life. But can I ask you this? What's happening in your heart? Maybe you're so familiar, like me, you can go through all the motions outwardly. Go to church, read the Bible, say all the right things. But but what's happening inside your heart right now? Is God cutting away junk out of your heart still? Are you still cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit and sensitive? Is the Spirit of God at work in your heart or are you just going through the motions? And let me ask this this morning as well because it is probably the most critical and eternal thing. Have you been trusting a false sense of security of what's going to get you to heaven? Hey, this morning, may the word of God be his personal word to you. Don't have a false security that you're going to just go to heaven and be forgiven because... You did this, or you don't do that, or you follow this observance. If you're not sure, make sure. Humbly embrace Jesus' salvation by believing and receiving what he alone can offer to you.